just like I don't know I don't know how to do this when Andrew's not here. I'm kind of I'm kind of hopeless. You got this. You figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't get it. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performances in Edmonton. I'm Fonda. And I'm Paul. And we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Powered powered by by ATB. How are you, Fonda? I'm great. How are you, Paul? Good. It's snowy out. It's snowy. It's so Christmassy. It is the season, uh, truly, Um, which, you know is also the season of nutcrackers in Edmonton and also a Christmas carol. Nutmacker, nutcrackers and Christmas carols. Nutmackers sounds like nut the most festive version of the Scottish play. Or is this the one thing that McDonald's could do at this time of year that would up their seasonal game? <laughs> would you order like nutmackers? A nutmackers. Six feet nutmackers? It, it sounds like it could be like a variation on chicken nuggets. Sure, yeah. Like there'd be like the breading would be like eggnog and, you know, uh, <laughs> nutmeg or something. All right. Uh, they would make it taste like turkey dinner. That's I think that's what right. they should do. Which would be a new thing, much like um, uh-huh. the festive tradition in Edmonton of uh, the Citadel's version of A Christmas Carol. Uh, this year got a, a revamp. It's a brand new version of the uh, Charles Dickens novella, which he wrote in six weeks, I learned. Wow. That is fast. That seems short, especially for Charles Dickens. <laughs> also, it uh, popularized the phrase Merry Christmas. Before that, it was Happy Christmas. But oh. I learned some trivia this week. I find when I'm watching BBC, they still do a lot of Happy Christmas. Mm. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Doesn't if you, the Queen always say that? Yeah, and if you watch like the Babar Christmas special, <laughs> it's all Happy Christmas, says you know a, a rich uh, colonialist elephant. Um, <laughs> right. All right. Well, so A Christmas Carol, the new mm-hmm. adaptation is written by um, playwright David Van Bell, mm-hmm. um, Edmonton playwright. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the, the setting um, is not in Victorian England, but oh, they've no. placed it now in sort of in a post-war 1940s. Uh, the main set uh, is a department store. Yeah, called Marley's. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and there is sort of where our, our curmudgeon um, Scrooge sort of runs, you know, runs his, his uh, toy toy shop. Um, and, uh, you know, and then as always, the, the things unveil. But uh, the interesting thing about that time frame was it sort of let them jump through times because as Scrooge goes through times, usually it's sort of like nondescript Victorian youth um, in uh, in a boarding school. Uh, but this gave it some like very concrete time and, and place, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, the party at Fezziwigs, it's sort of uh, the 20s-ish. Yeah, because it's a flashback. I thought that worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this production, they had a live band as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the Fezziwig party was very festive mm-hmm. um, with a fantastic singer, um, that kind of stuff. Also, the 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 whole show is not a musical, but it was punctuated by a lot of um, old and famous Christmas carols. Mm-hmm. Um, even I want a hippopotamus for Christmas was in there. Right, shows up. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so, so what did you think of that uh, framing, Fonda? That that sort of new uh, the the new clothes of this show. So I think it sort of taps into that other, like, what I wouldn't want to say the secondary era, because there's sort of two major 
um, nostalgia eras, I think, that have to do with a lot of Christmas stuff. Okay. There's like the Dickensian sort of, you know, Victorian type mm-hmm. one. And then there's sort of that heyday of all the Hollywood movies like Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where this one lied. That's yeah. where this Christmas Carol lies now. And uh, I'll admit I'm a huge sucker for the old Miracle on 34th Street. I love how it was in a department store and they included the old, I think it's a Polish Christmas Carol about Santa Claus that the... Um, the, in Miracle on 34th Street, one of the there's a young girl who doesn't speak English, but Santa mm-hmm. Claus sings this song with her, and that's how she knows that he's the real Santa Claus. Right. It's just like it's freaking beautiful. Right. I've um, never seen It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street. You what? I that in The Sopranos, Paul. What are we gonna do with you? Those are two very different things. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. I thought um, the setting worked well because it does sort of um, even having not seen those movies, uh, the tone of them sort of comes through in so many things and so many. Uh, so much culture of this year and you're right it's sort of this like era of nostalgia um, that makes sense for this story to happen in just as much as the Victorian um, the Victorian area that it usually usually happens in Mm -hmm. yeah and so um, well there were also uh, along with the era they they sort of modernized the language a little bit Mm -hmm. there are some lines still from the original Christmas Carol Mm -hmm. um, but the language is uh, now more contemporary they're not using British accents anymore Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, then there was one major character change. Yes. Uh, it's in all the reviews. We're not spoiling anything right. now. I was just... <laughs> name, name, name. Oh. Um, well, in, so in this version... Um, Cratchit. Right. Cratchit is, is a mother, not a not a father. Yes, yes. Um, uh, a single mother of, of many children, um, you know, has a big old family. Yeah, they, they still mention Bob Cratchit. So Bob Cratchit died in the war. Right. Um, and so now she's a single mom of six and... Uh, sort of like the manager of, of this toy store of Marley's or like assistant manager, sort of second to Scrooge. Yeah, yeah. And of course he doesn't, you know, appreciate her uh, enough, like, just like, you know, the old Cratchit... <laughs> Uh, themes and um, yeah it's I think it was a really interesting turn it was funny how almost um, easily it worked to Mm -hmm. have Cratchit not only like not Cratchit just a female actor playing Cratchit Mm -hmm. but Cratchit was actually a female character. Right. Emily Cratchit, who was mm-hmm. played by Alison McDonald. Alison McDonald, yes. Mm-hmm. Fantastic performance. Yeah, and I thought, um, yeah, it was. It felt effortless. It didn't feel like, uh, it was like, we're trying to make changes. It was like, no, it's, this is, uh, this makes just as much sense. This feels so simple. As much as I miss, you know, hearing Julian Arnold say, mm-hmm. like, my little cock sparrow um, <laughs> every year. Uh, yeah, it was it was a, a simple choice. What did you think of some of the design and some of the the elements of, of sort of adding that, like, visited by three spirits magic to this sort of post-war world and era and, and the design of the show? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the So the set was designed by Corey Sinsens. Um, fantastic job on, on the set. Uh, just kind of really bought, brought that... Um, Sort of like a little bit of glamour um, into into the era and into the into the department store, mm-hmm. um, and I think that you know the tricks to me the the magic tricks we won't don't want to give anything away because you want to mm-hmm. be surprised when you see this show but um, the tricks to me seemed really similar to the tricks in the old Christmas Carol right um, you know instead of a haunted door knocker there's a haunted something else yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and you know, the certain of that, certain parts of that seem prescribed by just what the story is. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, Scrooge is heading home alone. 
we need to start teasing out this spirit. Mm-hmm. How do we do it? Yeah. yeah, I did. I did. I really liked um, John Elliott's turn as the ghost of Christmas present. Yeah. He's sort of this weird kind of. Um, he seems like a huckster, like the yeah. you know, kind of like old gangster style. But yeah, like, yeah. He'd be uh, the guy who would be like, "I'm I'm a hustler, but I won't hustle you." And then you know, three days later, you'd wake up uh, outside of Vegas, uh, having, like I've been hustled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did this happen? Yeah, so there was some some nice um, tweaks to that to that world. Um, the ghost of Christmas future is sort of um, has forever been this giant puppet, um, and it's different. Uh, but I think it still had uh, its own sort of tone and magic to to how they portrayed that that spirit in in this case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and the ghost of Christmas past, um, real like it, it's usually played by you know a young a young person, mm-hmm. um, and a very sort of whimsical whimsical ghostly costume. Yeah, Lila Solimos played the ghost of Christmas past this time. Um, and we saw her before in um, The Bad Seed in uh, earlier this summer. Mm. And also she played Matilda last year. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so she is kind of up and coming. And, and uh, it was, it, yeah, I think it was kind of like a really neat, you know, uh, the ghosts were good. The ghosts yeah. were good. It's still a ghost story, but it's not like super creepy. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did you think of uh, Ebenezer Scrooge in this version? It was played uh, for the first time uh, this year by uh, Ted Dykstra, who's mm-hmm. sort of of, uh, you know, uh, originally from sort of this part of the world, but has a you know a rich history and uh, with Soul Pepper, he's a founder of Soul Pepper in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was here for uh, Two Pianos, Four Hands. Yeah, he's a... famous for creating that, uh, co-creating that show. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he came back from Toronto uh, to do this show. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that he was fantastic. Um, he How? he was just the right sort of, you know, curmudgeonly and and mean. And then you know, of course, in the end, we all know what happens at the end of the Christmas Carol. His heart grows three sizes, and he's <laughs> he's and the fine. Who's sing and, uh, he carves the hand. <laughs> Right, uh, right. Yeah, same turkey. show. Same show, pretty much. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, his, the tone of it, um, you know, he was there in, in large in his department store times in the show. He's sort of there in like a pinstripe suit, mm-hmm. you know, and he's just this gruff, uh, no nonsense, no wiggle room sort of dude who's obsessed with like, no, red toys have to be in the front because that increases sales by this much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, just joy, utterly joyless in in his way, which is, you know, the point of it. We get this, this show is about this transformation of this this awful person um, and then becoming aware of uh, making uh, better, better the world around them, you know, even even in their last years. You know, uh, whether, you know, the whole thing of like seeing the future of the Ghost of Christmas uh, future and being like, is this uh, is this going to happen or is this, um, you know, only might happen? And, you know, we don't know what happens to Scrooge after this story. We don't know if he kicks the bucket before next Christmas or not. Yeah. Like the ghost says. Uh, but Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but, you know, uh, at least we know that, you know, he's going to make the whatever time he has left on the world, you know, he's going to do these wonderful things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of some of the uh, some of the other sort of main performances? I wanted to point out um, Mrs. Dilber, who mm-hmm. plays Scrooge's um, maid. Uh, Long-suffering she, housekeeper. Oh, my God. Yeah. Played by Ruth Alexander. She's hilarious. 
hilarious. Mm-hmm. I, I quite liked her in that role. Um, and Julian Arnold is in the show. Yeah. He, he's, uh, he's Marley, Marley this time. Marley, yeah. With, uh, so he gets a little Probably bit of Probably the scariest ghost, right? With the, with the chains and stuff. I think so. Uh, you know, I w- the Ghost of Christmas Future this time had a very, like, creepy sort of... Um, a creeping sort of vibe would be maybe... Um, the best one. I really loved uh, Ben Stevens in oh, as Fred, as Fred, mm-hmm. yes, as uh, as uh, Scrooge's nephew. I think just like uh, such a great spirit for that character, and and mm-hmm. and the way uh, the way that was performed was just a delight that fit in with with the character and the world so so well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I thought that the fezzy wigs were were really fun and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Belinda Cornish and uh, Vance Avery played the fezzy wigs in this, and they were just some like lovely party people. Just just lovely yeah um, yeah so it was uh, yeah you know I think for a, a new version of the show and you know we, we saw it on a preview mm-hmm. we saw it on the second preview um, so you know it didn't feel fully dialed in yet of course there you know this is a brand new version of the show uh, unlike the one that had you know almost two decades of like fine tuning and uh, and that so I think um, it'll be interesting to see uh, see as it tightens up over uh, mm-hmm. what presumably will be the years um, as presumably they will um, keep this one going. But. Yeah, this one this one cost the Citadel a million dollars to produce. Right. Um, and I read something uh, I pre- in a preview article, I think, in the journal that um, the executive director of the Citadel expects that it will be paid off within this year. Wow. So... That's a lot. I wish I could pay off a million dollars in a year. What um, other Edmonton-produced theater shows are making a million dollar in a single run? Million dollar box office in a single run? Um, mm. Zero. <laughs> zero. May, I assume. Um, yeah. So that was uh, that was the Christmas Carol at uh, at the Citadel Theater, which runs until the twenty third of the, December. Yes. Um, great. Yes. Fonda, I think that means it's time for an ad. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by TELUS World of Science, home of the Canadian debut of Marvel Universe of Superheroes. 2019 marks the 80th anniversary of Marvel, and Edmonton is the first and so far only Canadian city to host this exhibit, which features more than 300 artifacts, including costumes, props, and interactive elements that bring the Marvel Universe to life. Travel through the mysterious mirror dimension of Doctor Strange, digitally transform into Iron Man, and learn the story of Marvel and its influence on visual culture. Get your tickets for Marvel Universe of Superheroes today at tellusworldofscienceedmonton.ca. Well, great. Um, that wasn't the only thing we saw this week, Fonda. Um, we saw yeah. something that uh, was perhaps decidedly less festive, um, but uh, also rooted in a nostalgia of its own. Yes, it seems that this is a very nostalgic time of the decade. <laughs> so I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> there is a lot of nostalgia going around these days. We saw Mr. Burns, a post-electric play at the um, ATB Arts Barns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it yes. was a co-production between uh, You Are Here and... Blarney, Blarney Productions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, this is a script I've heard about before. It's an American script by playwright Anne Washburn. Um, and... Uh, uh, as the name implies, it is uh, it's uh, you know it's about the Simpsons largely, but it's about um, stories and uh, what we what we hold on to and what we tell and how those change. Um, it starts after sort of some unspecified uh, nuclear disaster has uh, wrought over the world, and uh, we start with a group of survivors around a campfire, just trying to remember the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons, just like <laughs> trying to work through the details. 
Yeah. You know, and you get the sense it's like, right, how else... You, how do you pass the time? You know, you're trying not to think about what's happened, but you're also trying to remember these nuggets of of things you liked or you can all communally enjoy. Um, yeah, and so so we get sort of both this like remembrance of The Simpsons, these sort of hints of this nuclear disaster that's happened, and then uh, over the course of the two other acts, it's a three act show. Uh, we sort of jump in time and see how that like remembrance and uh, The Simpsons uh, starts to. A change in in the surviving people's sort of world and view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I loved about this show was that there was so much to unpack. You could have done it as three small plays, mm-hmm. um, standalone sort of, because they're in, in in some ways they are connected to each other, mm-hmm. um, and seeing the progression of them matters, of course, in the, right. in the story. But they could have stood alone, each to their own, and kind of like a kind of little bit of a package. And what was really interesting was also how they used the West. Theater. Yeah, um, I've never seen it used like this. This before they actually split the huge room into three different sets, mm-hmm. uh, three different sets with three different audience seating configurations. Right. So you have to move between acts, you know, and they're they're curtained off from each other. And uh, you know, the first one is this like campfire in you know somewhere in the round in, in the round mm-hmm. in America, and then the second one is a rehearsal. Um, as now companies have, you know, sprung up where they tour uh, versions of Simpsons episodes, you know, and they mm-hmm. try and acquire Simpsons episodes and they try and acquire lines from Simpsons episodes that have sort of they mm-hmm. that are, are lost. But maybe someone as they tour these remembers. And uh, and then the third one is, you know, a significant jump in time. There's about, I think, seven years between Act One and Two. And then between Act Three and Two, it's 70 ish years. Mm-hmm. And we, we just see a production of the Cape Fear episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> In like very sort of like heady Greek theater style, yeah. also mixed with musical. and uh, yeah. yeah, it's a sense of like, uh, you know, this was something so nostalgic or comforting for people to hold on to that they held on to it as a framework, but... It sort of adapts to the the culture and era it's in. It's mm-hmm. sort of um, to watch the seventy five years later version of Cape Fear is um, wild. Yeah, you know, it's this uh, hero's journey, and yeah, it's very Greek. Uh, and there's these clippets of pop culture songs that were sort of like uh, seated in the second one. And you know, uh, it's all of these little glimmers of things that we're trying to remember or things that we think are important mm-hmm. to tell these stories. And just The Simpsons becomes the framework for that. Yeah, what was what was really fascinating about the script is the way that it progresses through um, sort of not only not only that kind of like nostalgia and remembrance idea of how to how to tell story, but also um, the different forms that story can take. Mm-hmm. So there's you know the in the first part with the campfire, there's very much an oral storytelling when you can only things are only transmitted by people telling each other and right. people talking to each other. And then in the second part, there's um, that during the rehearsal when they're arguing about the lines, it's all—it's not like a copyright thing per se, but it is about just like how do we make sure that this is the right line? How do we remember it without having that evidence there? Right. Um, and, you know, it kind of makes you think a little bit about um, 
how Shakespeare's been adapted over mm-hmm. time. There's, you know, people start changing characters and maybe you change a line or something in a line to make it fit with the world that you're trying to set mm-hmm. it in, You that kind of stuff. So it, what was interesting was that, yeah, and then the who was feeling ownership over the stories yeah. um, because they're talking in the rehearsal uh, in Act 2 about how um, audience members will come and help feed them parts of stories that right. they're missing or parts of scripts. Right. Part of the job of being this traveling troupe is sort of someone works the booth, I think it gets referred to, and it's sort of like you, yeah, you have these discussions and maybe uh, uh, get people to, uh, when people offer lines, like they sign off and maybe they get paid for, you know, the use of their line because they they added this line back into the show and we all, now we remember it or, or whatever the case. I feel like we should... Um, uh, clarify as well that like each act is pretty um, separated like mm-hmm. they're between acts one and two I think there's some of the characters are back um, but act three is just the production it's not so much about following a linear narrative it's mm-hmm. about watching rem- remembrance change it's about watching these these stories sort of morph and get repurposed to be to be what they need mm-hmm. yeah I think there's sort of really only one uh I think, well, one of the performers, Murray Farnell, plays Homer the entire time mm-hmm. uh, f- throughout the three acts. And I think well, he, he can kind of do the Homer voice pretty well. Right, right, right. <laughs> and um, uh, Patrick Howarth uh, sort of shows up at this, as the Sideshow Bob character, mm-hmm. which by the end turns into Mr. Burns. Yeah, which is uh, mm-hmm. which. Um, before we went to see it, I watched the Cape Fear episode of Simpsons again because um, it had been years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting, especially in that first act, watching what they remember and what's off and thinking about times you've tried to explain something to someone and be like, oh, it's so funny, you know, like, and you can only half remember it and and watching that. Although there's a lot of mileage to get out of just describing The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you really see that in Act One. Um, You know, there's kind of like that that party that you go to and everyone's trying to remember something Mm -hmm. from like a TV show or something like that. And Mm -hmm. it it kind of devolves into an uninteresting conversation. But with The Simpsons, it seems... You know, there's so much to unpack mm-hmm. in just that Cape Fear episode. Yeah. Um, and also even in Act 2, um, referring to other episodes, you know, like the streetcar named Marge and stuff. Right. You know, and you you have these flashes of like, yes, I remember that episode. You know, I, I totally love that. And I think that... Um, what I think my favorite part was actually Act 2. Okay. Um, because just... Not only did it have this kind of like interesting sort of hodgepodge community theater feel to yeah, it, yeah. Um, but it was also it also really was the one that actually I felt talked the most about how story gets preserved, sure. and it, it had the most commentary on it. Right. Um, and then Act Three, I felt like, you know, I was just like, is this as good? Is th- does this make The Simpsons as good? You know, just like this heightened production style mm-hmm. and and that. And I think it was sort of a comment on. You know, is that necessary? Maybe a little bit. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I one thing I really like tracing sort of between Act One and Act Three was like, what in that first remembrance when people are just trying to remember the Cape Fear episode, um, what ideas get preserved and what sh- which are totally sort of changed or morphed or thrown out. Mm-hmm. Like there's this bit where um, they're on a boat, they're on a houseboat in the Cape Fear episode, and Sideshow Bob is there, and everyone's tied up except Bart, and he's trying to escape, and he runs from one end of the boat, and there's you know alligators, and he <laughs> runs to another end, and there's something else, and then he runs back, and there's there's alligators, and just that little bit is kind of preserved, mm-hmm. and like in the third act, it's presented with you know, not as a joke, it's just this like very dramatic, like trying to escape the enemy sort of moment, but it's like, 
Oh yeah, right. Oh, there's it's, that one bit. It's just a dumb yeah. bit, and that survived. Or you know, um, yeah, the villain becoming Mr. Burns instead of Sideshow Bob, mm-hmm. um, because. Uh, in the second act, there's sort of this reference to, like, the people love the Mr. Burns character. And it's like, right, well, then maybe uh, he ta- he becomes just the villain, you know, in this in this memory of, of who knows how many other productions of Simpsons that exist in this time. Because in, in Act 3, we get no outside view of the world. We just get this performance. Yeah, yeah. And I think that what was, um, you know, with Act 3 and that kind of replacement of, like, Mr. Burns instead of Sideshow Bob, mm-hmm. it felt like they were lo- taking, you know, more of the Simpsons as a whole. Like, like, Mr. Burns was the villain of the series. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and and still is. It's still, Simpsons is still going. 30-some seasons yes, now. Yes, so it's, it's still on. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> also the musical, like, the third act, that the kind of, like, Greek musical turn mm-hmm. ends very differently than the Cape Fear episode. Right. Um, quite tragically. And it's, it's um, and, and that made it not as... Not as Simpsons-like. And so it felt like there was a comment on it really departing from the original story. Right. Because the the framework of The Simpsons has sort of become what it had to, maybe, in, in mm-hmm. as time has moved on. And it's no longer just the, the lovable exploits of, of this family and these characters we love. It's become like... Um, this epic sort of morality production mm-hmm. uh, in its way of like heroism and valor and villains and and these sort of broad uh, tropes. But for us watching from, you know, 2019, it's like, right, we're wa- this thing we know is now totally different. And what will be totally different in what survives from our culture, you know, in 60 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the and there was, you know, a little bit of a nod to um, kind of like the pomp and and uh, like production value. Just at the very, very end, um, it's revealed that, you know, somewhat there's there's some lights that come on. Right. Um, you know, it's called a post-electric play. So right. they're not really working with a lot of stuff um, or uh, bells and whistles necessarily. Right. Yeah, batteries come up a lot in Act 2. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but it's revealed, you know, just in this last flash of Act 3 that someone is powering the electricity for the show. And it kind of makes you think about, you know, like, okay, so you're you're spending all of this effort and all of this, like, stuff mm. to make this one second trick happen. Um, and does that, does that, what does that lend to the story? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but, and why put the effort in at all? What is it about telling this story... Um, where we've seen it recounted around a campfire with zero production versus like a post-apocalyptic production, mm-hmm. you know, in, in this world differently. Um, that's that that is very different. Um, Seventy-five years later, uh, but it's something about we want to feed these stories as much pizzazz as as we can, right? Mm-hmm. In in the culture we're in or the the situation we're in. Yeah, you know. And um, Act Three, the masks were fantastic, right? Which were designed by uh, Megan uh, Koshka, uh, as well as uh, the set and costume was uh, Brianna Kolibaba, and the lighting was Tessa Stamp. Yeah, I th- I mean the masks were kind of cool because it of course nodded to Greek theater, mm-hmm. um, and the family, the main Simpsons family, each had their own mask. Right. Um, but yeah. all of the sort of like chorus and secondary characters had masks that were really only the hairstyles of other Simpsons characters, right. which yeah. I thought was brilliant. <laughs> right. And but they're all sort of this like gothy sort of like uh, mutated like we know they're the Simpsons but you know it's they're strange in in their way Mm -hmm. yeah I thought um, uh, there's a book called Station Eleven 
which was sort of a hit a few years ago, which is about uh, a, a different sort of post-apocalypse, sort of after like a bird flu type sort of virus has wiped out most of the population. It follows like a troop of actors who do Shakespeare in town to town. You know, they just like wagon from town to town doing this thing. Um, and uh, this came out first. Uh, this was sort of a, a, by a few years um, versus that book. But it's sort of um, – those are really interesting takes on like when the world ends um, – the people survive. Some people survive. Um, what do they hold on to? Uh, mm-hmm. What do they try and keep alive and, and why? Uh, why does Shakespeare matter after the world has collapsed? Why does The Simpsons matter after the world has collapsed? In some ways, it feels like it doesn't matter that it was The Simpsons. Um, I did some Googling and like apparently, well, Anne Washburn was sort of writing drafts. It was almost MASH. It was almost Friends. It mm. was almost these other sort of things. Um, and I think it's important in a way that it could have been something else. It's like, you know, for whatever reason, the people that survived, enough of them knew The Simpsons mm-hmm. that um, that that sort of became this anchor to cling on to of culture that we want to preserve. You know, and maybe with a different group of people, a different generation of people, it would have been something very different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's something like, right, these stories we tell um, serve us in the way of like, even if it's just the familiarity of knowing this series or knowing these characters, even if they've now become warped beyond all what they originally were, um, there's something about that familiarity of like, right, The Simpsons, even mm-hmm. as what that means changes, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Um, is, is important to culture and important to uh, us, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I, I heard about this play before um, before as well, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I would love to get my hands on this script. Like I felt like that's I felt the same way about Revolt, she said, Revolt again, too. Mm-hmm. Um, feels like we've seen some like pretty great, um, great playwriting this this season or in, of late, at least. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we just get these little like deep thoughts on uh, culture and conversation and and the evolution of things. Mm -hmm. Also longer plays. Yeah, yeah. This was, yeah, two and a half hours. And Theater Network actually had an intermission. Yeah, what is (laughs) happening in 2019? Yeah, wow. So, you know, we are are progressing. People are going to see shows and making a night of it now. Yeah. Once again. Once All right, again. Paul. Um, well, so that was Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. Um, it closes It closes this weekend. It closes on December 7th. So um, so that's that. Which is as the day we're recording this. Yep. So I hope you saw it. It was great. But also I think it sold out for uh, at least the last half of its run. Oh, yeah. So. I think that was the one thing um, that was, you know, it, it's, it's fantastic and great to sell at a show. But if you only have 70 seats, then, you know, I... I hope that it comes back in some way um, because, yeah, I hope more people see it because right. it was really fun. Yeah, totally. All right, Paul, I think it's time for another ad. Artists are often underserved at banks because they don't fit a typical profile. Freelance director Michael and actor Nicole kept getting turned down when they applied for a mortgage. Then they found ATB's Branch for Arts and Culture. The branch offers a different approach to banking and lending that caters to the unique situations of people working in creative industries. Now Michael, Nicole, and their son Luke have a home they love. To see more of their inspiring story, visit atb.com slash bradleys and visit atb.com slash thebranch to find out how ATB's branch for arts and culture can support your career in the arts. All right, Paul, well, what is happening? Well, as mentioned, uh, the new version of A Christmas Carol at the Citadel Theater is playing until December 23rd. 
Uh, next week is Mile Zero Dance's uh, next up in the Dance Crush series. Sarah does a solo, and that's at Spazio Performativo, December 13th and 14th. Uh, hey Ladies is at the Roxy on Gateway on December 13th. And Girl Brain also at the Roxy on Gateway for the first time, I believe, on December 14th. And Shumka's Nutcracker is playing at the Jubilee Auditorium December 14th and 15th. Cool. Um, also, we'll give you a little a little reminder that our other podcast, A Tale of Two Weeklies, is now streaming, and you can. Uh, there's new episodes we're dropping every Thursday mm-hmm. until the end of the month. About right. If you uh, cared about the Alt Weeklies in Edmonton, C Magazine and View Weekly, and want to hear the uh, battle scarred history of their rivalry um, and and heyday and and fall, uh, that's what that's about. So check it out. Yeah, that's at taleoftwoweeklies.ca or wherever you get your podcasts Mm -hmm. we are on google podcast now wow (laughs) great well uh thanks fonda thanks paul everyone thanks for listening go see some shows bye i don't get it is a member of the alberta podcast network powered by atb you can subscribe to us on apple podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the ckua radio app I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Sit here thinking, I love you.